before you're seated, could we just greet one another with a greeting of peace, peace in Christ to each of those around you. Again, thank you for being here today. We welcome you, and uh, we love this fellowship. So welcome today as we worship. Okay, God bless you so much. Amen. <clears throat> Welcome, guys. God bless you. Thank you so much. You may be seated, and I'll invite everyone to take a Bible that's available in the pew for you. We include, of course, there are many scriptures in our time in the message, but one thing we love to be able to do before our children go to their classes is for boys and girls, moms and dads, grandparents, Becky and I are especially blessed to have all three of our grandchildren here today. Gives us incredible joy. And uh, whatever role you have in life, to be able to read the word of God aloud together and uh, on Easter, what a wonderful time for us just to hear so much that we don't have time to even begin to scratch the surface of, but we can enjoy the reading of God's Word. Would you open your Bible to page number 1343? This is uh, in the Bibles in the pew, so we can be reading in unison. Most people here at Liberty bring different, many different Bibles, so uh, in order for us to read in unison, we make this time together. Page 1343, you'll find, is in Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 13 to verse 23 to help all of us as we read the Word of God aloud together in a personal way to be able to thank God anew and afresh for the mighty power of His resurrection in our lives. Today, when we look at the uh, sunburst of salvation we see that what God did through the cross, the atoning sacrificial death of our Savior, his burial and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God the Father Almighty is not only the very anchor of our faith, it is an active, present tense, dynamic source of God's working in our lives. In Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 23, is a great way to kind of pull that together in this reading. And so I'll invite you to read with us. We've been standing a, a good while, so we'll remain seated this time for the reading of the word. Would you read with me in Ephesians 1, 13 to 23? Let's read together. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills 
all in all. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, together we thank you that uh, the very heart of this prayer is for us to understand and receive in a new way the exceeding greatness of the power you exerted in the resurrection for your mighty resurrection life and power is the gift of our king. So in this celebration of your conquest, O Lord, may every heart be awakened anew to that true and mighty power. Bring comfort to those today who are on this Resurrection Sunday, the first time on a Resurrection Sunday, grieving the loss of a beloved loved one. Bring hope, comfort, healing, and peace to their spirits. Lord, here in our congregation, as would be reflected in others that are here from other churches, we, we thank you for the, the beautiful life of the two that we laid to rest in these last 12 months, our beautiful Nancy Bond and our wonderful Sylvia Gorman. And we thank you for bringing comfort and peace and healing and strength to all of their loved ones. And especially today, we pray for Joe deep comfort and strength in his heart is knowing how much she loved this day. Also pray your blessing and your healing touch upon the Durkham family in Detroit. We ask you for your touch of healing upon, uh, uh, upon Yusef's mother today. Just ask you for very special, um, quick, rapid recovery from her illness. We pray, Lord God, for your peace and strength for those who've come here with a loved one on their heart that needs a touch from your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you, and as Justin has mentioned earlier, we ask for the power of your Spirit to move across uh, the vast sweep of, of humanity in Eastern Europe who are suffering so terribly during this time. Lord, may the mighty power of the resurrection life of Jesus be so evident in the changed hearts and changed lives and healing and rescue and deliverance and restoration in the lives of multiplied millions. We pray, Lord, for intervention that would stop the scourge of war in that war-torn part of the world. Lord, we ask you to expand our horizon of understanding as we pray. Lord, that when we reach the very limits, which we so quickly do, of our human capacity, that we would take to heart another mighty resurrection truth that you gave us in Romans chapter 8, that when we know not what to pray or how to pray as we ought, the Holy Spirit himself ministers in prayer through groans that are too deep for words. And your Holy Spirit, Lord, uses even our yearnings in prayer. So hear the cry of any heart here today, whether it's from loneliness or difficulty or adversity or a hope that needs to be rekindled or an understanding that needs to be settled in their soul or an open door in their life or a mighty healing answer to physical or emotional need. We pray your mighty power to be known in Jesus' name, and we rejoice for you are Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Well, today with uh, uh, Pathfinders and Explorers class, we're so glad and always blessed by all of these teachers who prepare for these times together. And uh, I invite you today as uh, Pathfinders and Explorers classes are, are stepping on out, would you open your Bible together with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 24. Today, I am deeply blessed to share in this celebration of our Lord's conquest over hell, death, and the grave. And, and uh, we, have the wrong, we have the wrong PowerPoint up this morning. It's, uh, it's 0417. So we'll, we'll switch to that in a minute. And we're so grateful, too, as you open your Bible to Luke chapter 24, just to notice with me in your Bible, if you would, these opening words of Luke chapter 24 that give us that wondrous encounter of the women who came to the tomb early on that morning of our Lord's resurrection. And in these 
words, we see and we know that the present tense power of what we just prayed about for the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts is woven into their experience in such an amazing way. The promise of resurrection morning brings all of us face to face with the awesome mystery of life. Now think, how, think about how earnestly Mary Magdalene and her companions who approached the duty of honoring Jesus in those early moments of the day that we now call Easter. Though the word Easter doesn't appear in the Bible, there are debates over the history of the word. We aren't going to get into that, except to say that for most of us, it has a very positive connotation. I know my first experience of uh, discovering this wonderful truth was as a little kid. My parents lived in Los Angeles, California. It's one of my earliest memories. I was about five on that particular Easter when I was awakened at about 4.15 in the morning with a little Easter basket and all that. It was still dark, and we were going to make a trip to an Easter sunrise service at Hollywood Bowl, and I was wrapped up in a blanket. It was actually pretty cold even for that part of California. I was wrapped up in a blanket, and I remember listening to that choir that morning and looking from way up in the stadium down at that stage at Hollywood Bowl, and it left a permanent impact upon my mind of joyous triumph. Now, I don't even know how to put that into words, except to say that what we read in Luke chapter 24 is something that touches our hearts in that similar way. And when you think about what that resurrection morning meant and compare it to the day before, Saturday had seemed to so slowly creep by as these women were walking through the saddest Sabbath of their lives, the violent death of the glorious master teacher had been preceded by merciless torture and had taken away the Lord they loved. The sheer finality of it all gripped each of these women's hearts with incredible force. The angels startled the grieving women when they first arrived at the tomb that morning with the news of life triumphing over death, amazed and afraid. They struggled to absorb the facts, words that we'll read in this passage like risen, alive, and living struck like lightning in their hearts. Think of it for the very first time, like as I was a kid, I could remember that time, that awakening to something that stuck with me as I, even as I grew older and began to understand more about it. But for these women at the tomb, the first time since Adam's deadly disobedience, that life had become invincible. Christ Jesus, in resurrection splendor, had broken death's icy grip off the neck of creation. That sad morning errand to the tomb of the master suddenly gave birth to a new family, a family among whom we are today, a family of the redeemed, of the Lord, the Bible says, when it celebrates in Revelation chapter 5 that the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, has redeemed us to God by his blood out of every kindred, tongue, and nation, and ethnicity under heaven. So you think of these women, astonished and awed, and how the power of the resurrection got translated into acts of simple obedience in love and adoration to the Lord. The love they'd sought to communicate through the spices they'd brought to the tomb could now be poured out at his feet to the living Lord in worship. And really, isn't that what we're called to do here? Isn't that why we're here? Isn't that at the heart of how we express our wonder in the glory and the power of his resurrection, and that is just giving our hearts to him in worship. Until Jesus arose from the dead, this life we're talking about today was still 
just a promise. And of course, we experience it anytime we are bereaved of someone that we love. But death had strutted arrogantly around the planet like a jeering Goliath gloating in its 100% success rate. Life's best moments could never compete with the solemn certainty of the undertaker. Whatever melody human beings tried to play, the tune always ended in a tomb. These weeping women knew those sad songs so well until, until Jesus arose. And the church was born with a new song in its mouth, a song of grace, triumph, and eternal life. So rejoice is still the word of Jesus to all of us who lovingly meet him in worship. Read with me in your Bible in Luke chapter 24 as they began to experience this. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. One of the best things that happens to us as we gather to celebrate Jesus here is the simple experience that's described there in that um, eighth verse. Then they remembered his words. The words of his triumph, the simple facts about what Christ has done for us are life-giving words. It's why Jesus interacted with disciples at one point after the feeding of the 5,000 and he was talking about the bread and the, the body and the blood that he would give for our redemption and then symbolized it by the bread and the wine as we shared at the table on Friday night. And some of those were perplexed by the, the, the merging of those images and, and they said, what, what could he possibly be talking about? And in John 6, 63, he said, the flesh will profit us nothing because with human minds, we can't grasp how powerful this fact is. But it is the Holy Spirit that quickens for the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Now, this is the reason that I have come to think of Resurrection Sunday uh, as God's sunburst of salvation. For what you've just read in the Gospel of Luke is the, is the personal experience of the women who first encountered the wondrous fact of the empty tomb. And yet, in this verse from 2 Timothy chapter 1, we get a, a glimpse into the significance of what happened that was beyond what the women could see. They could see the empty tomb. They could hear the words of the angels. He is not here. He's risen. Indeed, go and tell his disciples. But what they could not see with their natural eyes is what the Apostle Paul describes in these words. That God has saved us and called us with a holy calling. He says just before this, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he's given us in Christ Jesus, and has made this grace known or declared it openly by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has put away death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Two powerful, continuous, ongoing experiences come to each of us from the empty tomb. 
That is, one, there is new life. There is a quality of life that is actually seen in Jesus himself. In the same chapter, if your Bible is open in Luke chapter 24, in the same chapter later when Jesus makes known his presence among them, it is, it is the, the presence of Jesus, the living Savior, is demonstrated as God's immortal power of life now being present tense in an actual body. Yes, the glorified body of Jesus, but a body that can be touched. This also surprised the disciples when they encountered it. Would you look in your Bible at Luke chapter 24 and verse 40, where Jesus showed to his disciples his hands and his feet? Why did he do that? Well, he explained in Luke 24, 39, that he wanted them to understand that in his resurrection life, let me put it very simply, he's real. This is not some science fiction story. This is not something, just a sweet fairy tale that some melodious writer made up to make us feel better about the complexities of life. No, no. It's not just the fact that he's alive in my heart, as wonderful as that is, is. It is the fact that he is alive. Not just in my heart. Tangibly, objectively, factually, scientifically, he's alive. And in Luke 24, 40, if you, again, look at it in your Bible, it says, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. So G Jesus was explaining that this life and immortality, we might think of it this way, the life part is the intangible, that is the quality of, of what God gives us in a living personal relationship. But immortality is part of it. Oh, it's why when we stand beside the freshly, grave, freshly dug grave of a loved one, that uh, the immediate reality of his or her presence in heaven with Jesus is the greatest hope. But the Bible does not abandon the body. The Bible speaks directly about God's creation of spirit, soul, and body. And it tells us that God has a plan for the body. And that is one of the many reasons why in daily life we are called to dedicate our energies, our whole body, our whole mind to the Lord. So I think of Paul's description of the resurrection like a great sunburst. Well, just about nine years ago, one of NASA's satellite systems called SWIFT identified one of the um, greatest explosions in outer space of a supernova uh, in, at, at, at a vast, vast difference distance uh, that is estimated to be about 12.8 billion light years away. The, uh, the NASA analysis of it was that it's the most amazing burst SWIFT has ever seen, this particular satellite system. And it, and it was described like this, that it's coming from the very edge of the visible universe. Now, as unimaginable as that is, and the vast distances that are beyond, that are mind-blowing, it struck me as I was thinking about this, that if we think about some of the incredible phenomenon in the vast reaches of outer space, they're fascinating to anyone who even begins to explore, to study what happens. And yet, that gamma ray burst that was labeled by the NASA scientists as GRB 080913, exploding vast distances from so far from us, that it took millions and millions of years, they estimate, to reach us, the light. That's nothing compared 
to the explosion of the life of God that erupted out of a tomb in Jerusalem on the morning of our Lord's resurrection. In fact, the impact of that, of that gamma ray burst is like the lighting of a tiny match compared to the mighty power of God's resurrection life. In fact, it's interesting that poets who have reflected upon the meaning of how God even uses the natural phenomenon to reveal something of his great power uh, have written, have connected uh, these phenomenal astronomical events with, with a reminder to us of the God who gives life. Maybe we could on a star-spangled night sometime look up and just say, Lord, I thank you for the stars and I thank you even more for the life in Christ that you gave me in the resurrection. I was surprised by these words, so I included them here for you, that uh, J. Sidlow Baxter, a very noted devotional writer of about the 1950s and 60s, wrote, included um, this poem in, uh, in his devotional book, uh, Awaken My Heart, with a reference to how the signs in the stellar heavens remind us of the resurrection power of God. Here's what J. Sidlow Baxter wrote. And here the bright immensities received our risen Lord, where light years frame the Pleiades and point Orion's sword. Well, a bit of obscure po poetry reminded me of something the scripture says in Psalm 19. Doesn't it say in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God? And in a way... This is just one of many ways we might think of the resurrection of Jesus, a sunburst, a literal bursting forth of God's gift of life. What a treasure it is to know that by faith in Christ, new life comes into your heart. In fact, it was so powerful that when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, he, he explained it this way, right on that momentous event where where a powerful working of the Holy Spirit was bringing the new believers to follow Christ and become a part of that early church, Peter stood up to preach on the day of Pentecost, and he explained the reason we can have this new life, the reason this new life can come into us, is because God raised him up, raised up his son Jesus, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. That is, Peter was describing the sunburst of God's gift of life in the resurrection and explaining to us that death could not quench the mighty life and immortality of the eternal Son of God. In his resurrection glory then, each of us are partakers of this life. There is a, a blossoming, a beauty, a newness, a, a liveliness that comes when you know that through the resurrection life of Jesus, God has made known something for us that he brings to us so that he can send the good news of this great glory through us. Now, we saw in the text in, Matthew, in Luke 24, and you might want to go back there if your Bible is open, just keep that uh, chapter open, and you'll notice in the 26th verse of that same chapter as Jesus was walking along the road to Emmaus with two that initially did not recognize him as he began the conversation, he asked them the question, did not the Messiah then have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? In other words, Jesus himself was explaining to those two on the road to Emmaus that the resurrection that we celebrate today was God entering, his son entering his glory. He refers to it in a different way, very similar, but a very interesting expression in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, where the Bible tells us that when Christ crucified is proclaimed, that we are giving the good news, not only that he died for our sins, but that in the resurrection, the crucifixion stays with him. Paul described his preaching in a very succinct phrase as two words, Christ crucified. I preached Christ crucified. Now, in those words, he was 
explaining that in his risen glory, he is still demonstrating the results of his crucifixion. It's why when he took that piece of fish and that honeycomb in the upper room that he said, behold my hands and my side. He wanted them to know that his, the wounds of his atoning sacrifice were visible in his glorified body to show us forever the price that was paid. And it's why Paul asked this question. Had the rulers of this age known this, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He's talking about this great sunburst of salvation, this place of freedom, this place of new life that comes to you and me when we like those women, when we come to the empty tomb. We come to the empty tomb like the women did in one way, though we know the story and they didn't. But we come to the empty tomb with our own struggles, our hurts, our needs, our guilt, our anguish. And, and it's for that reason that I thought today we would just focus on three examples of this uh, in thinking about how the resurrection life of Christ heals and releases our hearts so that we can truly be those worshipers, so that we can engage in worship fully. And it reminded me, as we think of these three in a moment, of the moment in the Pilgrim's Progress where that, that notable allegory of the of, of of the pilgrim making his way to the celestial city with that great burden upon his back. And as he's walking along that journey, that burden weighs heavily down upon him. The sin that all of us carry in our lives is the great burdensome load upon our backs. And as pilgrim makes that journey, John Bunyan portrays what we're celebrating today in a way that connects directly to the reason this good news should be on our lips every day. And it is at the empty tomb, at the place of the evidence of our Lord's conquest, we see what it means to trust him for salvation. In the Pilgrim's Progress, he worded it like this, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and begun to tumble. Now this part is portrayed as pilgrim reaching an ascending place whereupon is posted the cross. And as that load begins to tumble, it continues to tumble until it comes to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in, and I saw it no more. That is the very place in the allegory of the empty tomb of Jesus, the burial place that is now vacated because of the glorious triumph of the Son of God. So when you think about it, again, in your Bible in Luke 24, and you think about this morning experience, there is a, there's an interesting translation of... Uh, verse 1 of Luke 24, where a translator rendered the phrase, they came in the very early dawn on the first day of the week, and he translated it, the deep earliness. It struck me not only because of the early memories that I have of discovering this truth of the life of Christ, and the fact that in all of our life's journey, when we hear the good news, every Easter and in every way, God brings the newness of life to, of that to us. But as they approached that tomb, like pilgrim, like Christian, with that burden upon their back, those women approached that tomb with burdens of their own. And in many ways, there are points of connection that we can feel. Let's just think of three of them. One would be grief, obviously. And here, the women themselves are a living illustration of the grief that had gripped their souls as they had come with Jesus from Galilee and followed 
those who carried his corpse away from the Mount Golgotha, and surely in the sheer shock and the overwhelming loss, not only of the fact that he had died, but that he had died in such a brutally vicious and wicked way. Here, the sinless Son of God, here the master teacher, here the mighty miracle worker who opened the eyes of the blind and cleansed the leper and raised the dead. These women who loved him so dearly had to watch as that shrouded corpse was carried to the burial place. Some of us may have a different experience of grief, and yet it's real. Some of us in this place today carry a a sense of the freshness of loss of someone that we love. And we, too, come to the empty tomb. We, too, arrived, as Pilgrim did, with that kind of a burden upon us. And when we hear the good news, we read it in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that the appearing of Jesus has made life and immortality brought into light through the gospel. We hear it in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 where Simon Peter later explained, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us new birth through the, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why do you have a living hope today? Why do you know you can be born again and belong to Christ for eternity? Simply because God the Father raised his crucified son from the dead and glorified him as a prototype like the first of many, the first fruits of them that slept, we read in Corinthians. So we bring our grief. And I invite you to bring your grief today. And one reason I'm talking about this is I know how easy it is for us to get swallowed up in grief. I know how easy it is for a sense of loss to steal our momentum. I'm deeply struck by the choice these women made from the night, Friday night, at sundown as the official Sabbath on that special Sabbath week began And they were engulfed in such horrific loss. And yet, because they observed the Sabbath, all they could really do would be observe where the body was laid, go and begin to make plans to bring these spices to the tomb. Well, the choice that many would have made would have just been to go and crawl off someplace and stay isolated and weep. But there was something in them stirring to bring and offering of adoration to the Lord, even though their hearts were so deeply and terribly broken. And God gives to each of us an invitation to Christ to bring our grief. What I see in these women's example is that God gives us a model that he wants our honest grief. You may be hurting about something that you feel you could talk to no one about, that it would be very difficult to really open your heart and really express what's really happening there. Part of the wonder of the resurrection of Jesus is that it reminds us it is God's open invitation to your great high priest. That he invites us to bring our honest, candid, real, even the raw hurt of our broken hearts. And then, of course, that grief can be overwhelming simply because of the brutality of loss. But there's a different kind of burden, and that is the burden that Simon Peter had in, described in Matthew 26, 67, where he went out and wept bitterly because of his three times denying Jesus when the Lord himself had told him just hours earlier, as Peter proclaimed his undying devotion, Lord, though everyone forsakes you, I would never, never me, Lord, never me. Never me. And Jesus, speaking not not just to bring the prophetic fact to light, I believe it was to show Simon Peter in advance the mighty power of what you and I can experience today, that we have an ever-living high priest who prays for us 
that we have the presence of our living Savior, that you can literally bring not only the losses, but your own failures directly to Jesus. And I believe that Simon Peter's example of how Jesus met him in that resurrection scene on the Sea of Galilee and looked at Peter three times and said, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. That the words of Jesus did for Peter what the words of the living Lord can do for you in your heart this very day. If you're here in this place and you may say there's something about me or my experience, pastor, I wouldn't even want to be talking about it openly. I just want to, I want to bring it to God. I want it to be known that I need God's healing touch in my life. I need a new beginning. I'm, I'm wrapped in the agony of something that has hurt me and that has brought me great loss. And then another of many things that we could bring to that empty tomb are our deep doubts. Now, of course, these might be progressive. We, we lose a loved one or we lose something very dear to us or we're wrapped in grief over something that has devastated our dreams and we feel agony over our own failure. And then, like Thomas, we also, and open your Bible to John 20, 24, just a moment. Go to that text in your own Bible because there you see that uh, great example of how Jesus met the doubter. And, and there can be doubters here in this place today. In fact, doubters are most welcome because Jesus meets us at the place where we need him most. Remember that. Jesus meets you at the place you need him most. And here in John chapter 20, verse 24, we see a great example of it. Thomas also known as, as Didymus, a, a, an Aramaic expression meaning the twin. One of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to him, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Notice the word will. In Thomas's words, I will not believe until I see. Now, we might, we might take that as a word of defiance that, that the Lord would frown upon. Because we would think, oh, well, he's flunked the faith test. But guess what? In his risen glory, Jesus is showing all the disciples, as he showed those women at the empty tomb, as they were able to see by their experience, that the living Lord has anticipated our worst messes. And that the living Lord also is showing here that a wholehearted trust in God is what comes in resurrection faith. It is a trust in God that says, I want to know you fully and the encounter with Thomas also demonstrates for us that Jesus wanted them to understand this is not a fairy tale. This is not science fiction. This is not a beautiful drama, a beautiful novel that you've been told. No, this is Christ the Lord who has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And then he says in John 20, 27, do you see it in your Bible there? As he comes through the doors, as he enters the room without having to open a door, so that in his glorified body, Jesus is showing both the tangible reality of this eternal kingdom and yet also the all-surpassing power of God's resurrection life. Yes, it's life and immortality. And he says in verse 27 of John 20, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. There's something important missing between verse 27 and 28. Because in the text, we are not told whether Thomas did that. In fact, we could probably imply we could probably conclude that all Thomas needed was the word of Jesus as he showed him his hands and his side. It doesn't say physically that he reached out to touch him. I think that's notable. It's possible that he did. 
But it's notable that the very next statement in John chapter 20 is Thomas saying to him, my Lord and my God. You see, what really happened here is what we have come here for today, and that is to be awakened by his glory. I, I, I note that uh, many skeptics throughout uh, history that have sought to understand and, and respond to this wonderful good news have wrestled with the facts, and many have wrestled defiantly. One of those was a Frenchman, a, um, an expert in, in, uh, in linguistics by the name of Ernst Renan, who thought to dis sought to dismantle the whole story about Jesus. And in all of his work, he struggled to try to prove that these things could not have actually happened the way they're recorded. But after extensive study and research, he came to this conclusion, that Jesus of Nazareth was a man of colossal dimensions, the incomparable man, before whom millions have bent the knee in declaration that he is the Son of God. And whatever may be the surprises of the future, you can be sure of this, Jesus will never be surpassed. Isn't that amazing? And, and truly, that, that word of a, of, of, a, of a stumbling skeptic, someone still groping in the dark for full understanding, is one little hint of how Jesus mercifully deals with the doubters. Remember these three things we bring to the empty tomb? Our grief, our loss, our agony, our doubts. Oh yeah, at the opening of the empty tomb, they tumble down. Because Jesus wants us to be able to go today in the way that Thomas did. In the way that the women did as they ran from the tomb with the news. As the way that the women did when, they, when Jesus met them in the way in Matthew 28 where it tells us that they fell at his feet and began to worship him. He wants us awakened by his risen glory to see. You saw that prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. We pray that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. To hear his voice, to know that word of the gospel for you is just as powerful as the words Jesus spoke to Thomas. When he said, Thomas, fear not. Peace I give you. Look, see. A spirit has not flesh and bones, as you see I have. Jesus, the risen Lord, was demonstrating clearly that we are to care about evidence. And in fact, we are to come to him knowing that every stumbling place in our faith, Jesus, the living Lord, has promised to meet us there. And then, of course, above all, above all, we're called to go and to tell John, the gospel writer, who later ministered tenderly as a shepherd, churches across the region called Asia Minor in those days, it's modern-day Turkey. Before Jesus appeared to him on the island of Patmos, John had already penned these words to the many churches he gave pastoral care to. That which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, who we have heard, we proclaim to you, the life appeared. We have seen and testify, and in the next verse he said, truly our fellowship, our, our getting together, our connecting, our communicating, 1 John 1, 3, our fellowship. Our fellowship today is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. As we pray, I want to invite you to think anew about an old and very familiar word. You might be in this place today and you may have heard this many times. But the beauty of the gospel is that it, it's, I like to think of it as evergreen, it's effervescent. It's always percolating new life. Wherever it's heard, wherever it's proclaimed, wherever it's sung, praise God. Yes, there are people here, all of us welcome to bring those great burdens upon our back up to that ascending hill to the cross, where then as we look at the glorious evidence of the dying lamb who bore in his very body the penalty of our sins, Oh, we find ourselves then at the open tomb, the empty tomb, 
the vacated, the vacated hole of the rock that the crucified body of our Savior lay in until that morning of sunburst. So when we know this is true, we can hear very familiar words and they can resonate with fresh power. As we bow our heads together in prayer, I'd like you to hear the words of the Lord, Romans 10, 9. That if you, that is you and me, it's individual, that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that, yes, God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart... We believe. Like Thomas, we, we may struggle with those doubts. Like Thomas, Jesus meets us in that dark place of doubt. Like Thomas, Jesus approaches us not with a frown or a scowl, but I believe with a twinkle in his eye, with a bright, beaming smile, saying, Thomas, Thomas, don't you see? The sunburst has come. Salvation has arrived. You can believe. Because yes, I am here with the heart. We believe. We step out of that dark cavern of doubt. And we say, Lord, I, I don't understand it all and I know I never will. But I step out of that dark cavern of doubt and I believe you, Jesus, you are my living Lord. And trust him completely. That, that's that's the gift. With the heart, we believe it. And then he says that one last thing. With our mouth, we confess Jesus is Lord. And that becomes a part of you doing exactly what the women did. They, they saw, they heard the good news. He is not here. He is risen. And go and tell. Go and tell. As we pray, I'm going to ask that anyone today that would just like to have that assurance resting upon your soul in a new way that you would just lift your hand and I want to pray for you today God I thank you for bringing people today who are here to say yes Lord I want you I want you in my life I want to meet the living Savior the living Lord and as we pray that for you I assure you he is made that known so that you can count on it. In Jesus' name, amen.